1: Hey everybody, it's Drags, and this week on episode 10 of Jungle Roar, a Cincy football podcast, I welcome the one and only Ben Baby covering the Bengals for ESPN. Ben, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Drags. How are you doing? I couldn't be better on this Tuesday as we record, trying to look ahead uh, to Steeler Week, as we know that uh, know it to be here in Cincinnati Ben, I don't know what to make of the Bengals after two weeks. Uh, There was that exciting win that they should have won, should have lost, but ended up winning in week one against the Vikings. And then uh, I thought they came out, and I I know you asked this question post-game sitting next to me uh, in Chicago. Did you think that they were mentally prepared to go on the road and uh, battle the Bears?
0: Yeah, you know, all the players, I I asked a few guys, asked Zach Taylor if they were, and everybody said yes, but for whatever reason, the performance just felt flat uh, offensively. Defensively, I thought they played well. The first drive, I'll be honest, I mean, the first drive of the game, I thought they just came out a little flat-footed as well. The Bears uh, marched down the field, and that that ended up being, you know, the big difference in the game for, you know, the bulk of it. But offensively, they just looked stagnant. Uh, didn't really, you know, wasn't able to get a, in a, any kind of rhythm. Joe Burrow was largely inefficient, and the final score will ultimately kind of, kind of, you know, that was it'll 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 be a mirage for what the game actually was, and, and it kind of doesn't do the game a disservice and how poorly the Bengals played up until the end so no I thought that they did come out a little flat but when we asked Zach Taylor and the players they all said we were ready to go the intensity was there so you know maybe there was another reason for kind of the lackluster performance but at the end of the day there's no there's no doubt that it was a lackluster performance even in a three-point loss
1: I'm going to start with the positives I don't usually do this even though I am a positive guy Um, but I thought the biggest positive was the way the defense adjusted after that first drive because Um, you know, we were in the press box, we were sitting next to each other and we looked at each other and went, wow, that secondary looks horrific. And the, the middle of the defensive line, I thought looked pretty good, even in that first drive. But the adjustments they made, the pressure that they started to bring as the game grew on, even with Justin Fields uh, replacing the injured Andy Dalton, I thought that was a very encouraging sign. And I think not enough people are talking about the job Lou Anarumo um, has not only done through the first two weeks, but I think throughout the preseason and training camp of kind of remaking this defense. Yeah,
0: you know, I thought they, they did a really good job and, and it helped that they had Justin Fields come in. I believe he was significantly uh, worse. His completion percentage was worse than expected. I believe it was by 10 percentage points, yep. which is a quite, quite a large margin according to the NFL Next Gen. And, and you know, they did a good job of, of, you know, giving them different looks and and being able to keep that, off you know, keep that Chicago offense at bay, especially when they were put in multiple a bad position throughout the game. I mean, the fact that the Bears only scored 20 points is kind of remarkable given where they got the ball in a lot of the game, kind of how, you know, how much of a disadvantage the defense was and for them to hold them to as many field goals as they did, really only gave up 13 offensive points uh, is is quite remarkable. So I, I think that Lou Anarumo deserves a ton of credit. And to be honest, I think there was a lot of pressure on him after the last two seasons for this unit to be better and right now, Lou is definitely answering the call. And and I think it helps that Lou finally has, you know, a lot more upgrades on that side of the ball. I think a lot of people, when the this coaching staff took the job in 2019, didn't realize what kind of state the defense was in to some degree. Uh, you know, I think there were good pieces here and there. They were scattered, but by and large, uh, you did need a defensive overhaul. They've done that. And I think Lou's done a good job of adjusting um, and kind of, especially with the, the rush, rush schemes and, and what we're seeing the defensive line do. We're seeing them get more upfield this year. We're seeing them turn loose and create more pressure, which I think has benefited this
1: defense a ton. Uh, I would agree with that, and it's no surprise that uh, for those who do follow pro football focus and they grade every every play and every player, four of the top five graded players on Sunday against the Bears were defensive. might surprise you who was number one, Logan Wilson, who could have had the – transformational scoop and score if he uh, had been able to get his hands around the ball after the uh, strip sack uh, of uh, one Justin Fields. But uh, he obviously, as we all know, could not uh, fall on the ball. He couldn't scoop it up and the Barrows got it back and punted. And uh, we looked at each other in the press box, Ben, and said that was a pivotal play because that resulted in a loss of 40 yards uh, for the Bengals. But the defense still, uh, they're making big plays and uh, the fact that they're getting not not only are they getting slot pressure, both Von Bell and um, uh, help me out here, uh, Jesse oh, Bates, Jesse right. Bates both came on corner blitzes on Sunday and nearly got to Justin Fields Not only, and Andy Dalton. But not only that, uh, they're getting pressure up the middle. And I think that's what uh, they haven't been getting the last couple of years. Yeah,
0: it's not just – I mean, it's defensive line pressure as a whole is what they weren't getting. And this year, you know, they made it a point of emphasis to go get Larry Ogunjobi, and when they signed him, I know Lou Anarumo was really excited about the pressure he would be able to bring up the middle. And sure enough, that's come to fruition. I think DJ Reader's actually been a pleasant surprise. We've we've seen him over the years, you know, whether it was his time in Houston or early in Cincinnati before he injured his quad last year. Uh, you know, he was more of a, a gap fitter and a guy who was going to clog up the middle, and and he still is doing a fantastic job with that. But for him to go up upfield and get a sack on Sunday against Chicago, I thought that was huge. You know, and and that's the kind of pressure they need for years. You know, the Bengals relied on Geno Atkins and Carlos Dunlap to bring the pressure, and as they got towards the end of their careers, that really wasn't the case. And and by and large, Geno Atkins was the guy that was scaring opposing offensive line, linemen and, and opposing offensive coordinators. And if Gino wasn't bringing the pressure consistently, you didn't really know where it was going to come from. And, you know, they've done a good job of, of getting that in the middle and then on the edges. I think Trey Hendrickson's actually done a pretty good job. I know the sack numbers aren't necessarily there, but when you look at all the holding penalties he caused uh, against Minnesota, he had, that strip sack that could have changed the game. And, and Sam Hubbard's also done a good job as well off the edge, I think, to some degree. And, and that's what you're looking for. And, and, you know, Hendrickson's actually been a pleasant surprise because I thought that, you know, his numbers suggested that his 2020 season with the Saints where he had 13 and a half sacks was somewhat of a fluke. And we may not see the same sack numbers this year as we're starting to see through two games, but he is being very disruptive, which I think is what you need when someone coming off the edge.
1: I thought it was fun that uh, on Monday when we had a chance to talk to Trey Henderson, uh, Hendrickson uh, on Zoom, he talked about his wife helping him out, uh, not only with his diet, which a lot of athletes talk about that. If they have a significant other and that um, partner helps them eat better, it, it obviously shows on the field. But not only that, she helps him break down film. I, th- I just thought that was hilarious. Yeah, it's
0: crazy. Listen, you cannot underestimate the value of having a good partner. And so, I mean, no, you cannot. (laughs) And and Trey has talked about that. I think if you ask people who cover the Saints, you know, his wife has played a big role in his success uh, over the years. And, And, you know, that's kind of what you need and good for trade that that's worked out really well for him but you know i think he's been answering you know i think he's living up to somewhat the, the degree of the the contract expectations when they signed him and they needed somebody to come off the edge and be a little bit more disruptive and you know like i said i was skeptical but i think so far i liked what i've seen out of trey hendrickson
1: All right. That's all the good stuff about the defense that we're going to get into. Uh, Certainly we can get into it as the season progresses, but everybody and their brother wants the Bengals to do what, Ben? Throw the damn ball deep. It's not that simple. And I thought it was interesting on Monday uh, in our conference call with offensive coordinator Brian Callahan. He said, I hear that but I don't quite understand the logic. And he didn't go quite full, you know, 100% defensive mode uh, in his answer, but you could tell that he was like, yeah, I hear the criticism, but it's not that easy. And Zach Taylor, to a lesser degree, um, when talking about how much Joe Burrow has been getting hit and the four sacks uh, on Sunday, he also wanted, I think, to let some fans know there's more going on than what meets the eye. That's all.
0: Yeah, I, I, I can see it both ways. Uh, for me, I think that would, you know, and I, I wrote it and, and, you know, basically uh, at ESPN, I said after Mondays, you know, after after the press conferences on Sunday going into Monday, you know, I said, you know, it may be time for, for Zach Taylor to, to take a hard look at himself as a play caller after two years and two games. And I thought what was most surprising was that Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase both kind of spoke out about kind of the offensive strategy, which Joe Burrow typically does not do. And, and, you know, I think he's really smart, understands offenses and defenses really well, has a great understanding and knowledge of the game uh, in real time. And for him to say, you know, what he said about why the offense was so stagnant, what I thought was really fascinating and it may not be throwing the ball deep. It may not be taking deep shots. You know, there was a, uh, there was a play in real time. And, you know, when we saw that the bears bluffed a single high look ended up going to a two safety shell up top and it may have taken away a deep route. I thought that, you know, maybe, you know, in real time, it looked like Burrow may have wanted Jamar chase on the sideline. And then, you know, in the T Higgins going over the top as well. And I think there's blame to go around, uh, you know, Burrow definitely missed Higgins. On a deep ball down the middle, I think he was on one on one. I think if Burrow throws the ball to the inside instead of the outside, where it went, that ends up being a touchdown. Uh, you know, Burrow got a lot of heat on Twitter for for a ball that went out of bounds uh, on the down the sideline to Jamar yeah. Chase.
1: Yes, I remember that. That was, was right toward us. As a matter of fact, yeah, we saw the play I, unfold.
0: But I don't think people realize that's one of the toughest balls to throw a go ball down the sideline. It's not like, it's not like anybody can complete that pass. That's the degree of difficulty is actually quite high to get a guy in stride in bounds because you don't have a lot of margin for error. Because if you do, if that ball drifts just a little bit to the left, like it did, that ball's out of bounds, but also if it drifts too far to the inside, the defender is going to have to make a play. So it's actually one of the tougher balls to throw uh, in my opinion. And, and so you know I, I think that it's not the deep balls, it's more the intermediate balls that balls in the ten to 20 range uh, that they really kind of needed to hit on a little bit more and you know the fact that Burrow and Chase both said we knew what they were doing uh, you know and we just weren't able to do it, it oh, there's a lot of things that people aren't necessarily saying, and we're gonna find that out over the next couple of weeks. but you know I talked to Brian Callahan for a story on Joe Burrow and kind of his arm strength at the beginning of the you know back in training camp and and Callahan had an interesting point. he said, defenses are going to test burrow and see if he can beat them deep and we've got to be able to show them that we can and so i think that's what joe also kind of alluded to as well Is we've got to at least make defenses believe that we're going to go deep on a regular basis and i know zach said it's not as easy as it looks and he's right you don't want to just throw recklessly into into zone coverage and if the defense is trying to bait you into a deep throw you don't want to give them the bait uh, because and you and you don't want to take the bait excuse me and you know put yourself in a bad situation for a turnover but there is a balance that does need to be struck because right now you know if burrow is feeling like he's uncomfortable and he's having to force balls into bad windows underneath you know that is not a good sign so i think that's something that they do have to figure out one way or the other
1: uh one more point on the deep ball and i know you and I have, you and i have talked about this um the two deep balls that people, the two touchdowns to Jamar Chase, one of 50 yards, I actually thought the one against the Vikings, that was a pretty good throw. And he let yes. him, and uh, I, I had no problem with that. I thought that was a spot-on deep throw, really what you want to see from Joe Burrow. The touchdown on Sunday, and I thought you were right on it, Ben, um, the ball was underthrown. And Jamar did a great job, and Brian Callahan gave uh, Jamar Chase uh, props for coming back on it, making the adjustment in traffic and catching the ball. That ball was underthrown. And, you know, one throw like that can start to plant the seeds of doubt a little bit Uh, when you're watching Joe Burrow. And, you know, there's been some uh, rumblings, I guess, of his arm strength not being really what you want to see from a guy who can throw the ball deep.
0: Yeah, you know, in, when we asked Callahan and when we asked the, the coaches before the draft and then after his first season, everyone has said that there hasn't been a concern about him being able to, to get that deep ball. And Joe Burrow has said himself that the arm strength isn't why I wasn't completing balls downfield. But the, the fact of the matter is that that's something he struggled with in 2020. You know, his, historically and categorically was very bad throwing the ball you know, of air yards, 20 yards or more uh, down the field. And, and this year, Jamar Chase has, I think, improved things a little bit, created a little bit more separation. Uh, I thought T. Higgins has been able to create separation as well. It just hasn't been able to connect uh, at all times and is, is a guy who can create uh, those big plays vertically. So I, I don't really know what the answer is. Uh, like you said, that, the deep ball that, that Burrow had to chase – or uh, on you know against Minnesota down the right sideline i thought was a really good ball and one of his better throws and and i don't know if there is a you know what the solution is but what, you know if if the defenses are continual i think this is just fundamental football 101 if defenses are basically sitting underneath in, in low not necessarily stacking the box or playing very very underneath You've got to be able to at least test them vertically. Otherwise, that field is going to be so compressed that causes problems in your short and intermediate passing game, which is what Burrow really thrives at, if we're being honest, and also makes it more difficult for Joe Mixon to find um, you know, um, gaps in the run game. And especially if you if you think about this, if your corners are sitting closer to the line of scrimmage and you're a wide zone scheme and you're wanting to get across the field, well, that's less distance that the secondary has to come up for because they're already playing up. So theoretically, that actually opens up rushing lanes on the outside as well, you know, because there, there's more distance and there's more space on the field. So there's a lot of things when your defense is playing so close to the line of scrimmage, even if it's not a stacked box, which the numbers showed us on Sunday, the Bears did not actually stack a ton of boxes uh, when loaded them up with eight defenders or more. But it's still perceptually felt that way. And, you know, we'll see how that, you know, what that adjustment looks like in coming weeks, because I find this really fascinating.
1: Well, I do too. I lo- I love the X's and O's, and, and the coaches and, and the personnel people in the NFL know infinitely more than we ever will, right? I mean, Correct. they study this 18, right. 19 hours a day. Um, but it does fascinate me to go back, uh, especially on Mondays, when you have time to kind of digest everything. Because one thing that I don't think enough This – I'm going to go off on a tangent. Fans don't realize is when we are watching the game in the press box – Real time, it's a lot harder to diagnose why a certain play is happening a certain way. Right. And when we get the time on Monday and to a lesser degree on Tuesday to go back, watch the film, that's when you start asking educated plays, uh, educated questions about what's happening in these plays. I want to uh, reference a play that you tweeted about on Monday, and it's fascinating. It's off the NFL Next Gen uh formulator what do you call it it's a gift off nfl next right. gen it, right you, right, you right. know the play i'm talking about right where burrow gets sacked yes on the screen by play. khalil mack yes yes okay now what's interesting to me about that play is you have four receivers going out nobody reads a hot read that my actually five it's an empty set you right. have thomas um chase Uh, Tate, Boyd in his normal slot, and T Higgins. Nobody crosses over the middle like shallow cross in what would be a hot read or a hot route that I can see. And somebody needs to do that. And Zach Taylor on Monday referenced that fact that one of our receivers has to read a hot route and make that play and give a release to Joe so he doesn't have to take the sack, right? I mean, essentially, that was the point that um, Taylor was trying to make.
0: Yeah, I'm pulling this up right now because I want to see this. Uh, in real time on my computer here. So looking at this, you know, they ran three, three receivers to the side and they looked like it was kind of a clear out play and they got a two on two matchup on the outside. It's almost like, like basketball to a degree. And what happened is, is they were going to run a screen, uh, to the left side to either chase or Thomas. Now when we look at it, Thomas immediately goes to engage his defender. And Chase, I you know, even watching the tape, the all twenty-two, it was hard to figure out who was gonna be the screen. I tend to lean towards Chase uh based on the way they were blocking. Uh the the linemen were blocking, but the yep, entire three of them yeah, I, the entire offensive line released. And so at that point, you know, Burrow held the ball long enough. And when he looked over there, he saw that the screen wasn't there. And then he immediately had to recalibrate. Well, the issue is the three receivers on the right side weren't really running routes designed to be thrown to. You know, those were kind of decoy routes because they really wanted the screen on the left side. And you really don't have a second option on a screenplay. You throw the screen for the most part, unless it gets busted, then you get rid of it. And so, you know, that was one of the examples of, you know, I don't know if that was kind of a miscommunication thing. Maybe, you know, it's it's a play that you know, I'd love to know the answer as to why that screen fell apart. Um, you know, it is one of the limited snaps Mike Thomas had on the field. And so maybe there was some miscommunication between Chase and Thomas because they're rarely lined up next to each other because the Bengals play three wide receivers so much. But, yeah, that's a, that's an example of, you know, just something that just didn't, you know, really work out offensively. And it's, it's hard to put my finger on what it was. I'd love to know. Um, you know, what, you know, what happened there. But I, I think looking at that, it appears that was on chase. And, you know, if so, that's kind of a rookie deal, but it's just, it's it's a very bad time to have one of those.
1: Got to get Joe Mixon going. How do you do it, Ben?
0: You get the pass game going. I'll be quite honest. I think you, I think you get the deep ball going. I think you can't have, even though that Joe Mixon was running against light boxes, you can tell that the space just wasn't there. Yes. And the front and the defensive front, you know, by and large was doing a really good job because they were coming forward. They weren't. You know, they knew. Okay, we can we can come back. And I still need to go back and watch the tape as well. But watching it in real time, I think that you know they they were aware of what the game plan was going to be, and they you know the Bengals tried to to run out and, and and do a lot of the empty stuff. You know, the four four wide and and kind of you know really be wide open in space, which is football I really like to see. To be quite honest, it's what we do down south. So yeah, uh, I always. Works quite hard We've had see. that
1: discussion, Ben. Right,
0: right. But you know, with Mixon, I thought it was interesting is that his lack of targets. Was really fascinating, and they they tried to get him going on the outside, like the the screenplay where where Zach, you asked Zach about uh, on Monday, where it looked like there was supposed to be a pick play, um, an unofficial pick play because pick plays are illegal, but uh, where one of the defenders, I guess, was was in tune with it and didn't pass off the uh, didn't pass off the the wide receiver and was able to to be interrupt that that screen. But Mixon, by and large, I think he's at his best when you can get him in space. I actually think the first. Play of the game. Correct me if I'm wrong, Trags, but I want to say on that first drive they they tried mixing outside, if I'm not mistaken, and that was one of the. And then so I think the other target was on the screen, and then that was pretty much it. So I think you have to a open up the the, the game vertically, and then that's going to you know once you once you create a little more space in the middle of the field, and, and you're able to kind of. Yeah, uh, And, and you know, you're able to get those gaps that you're looking for. I think Mixon uh, will find those holes. I think the other thing, too, is the offensive line does have to be better, especially in the interior. I think there's a lot of questions about uh, the combination between Quentin Spain, Trey Hopkins and Xavier Suofilo. Specifically, I would venture to say Suofilo uh, looking at it. You know, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens this week if he can't go if Jackson Carmen won't make his first start at right guard. Uh, you know, I think there's good. there'd be an argument that even if Suofilo was healthy, you know, when would you want to try Carmen at that right guard position? Because, you know, I think Suofilo has, has done his best, but right now, uh, you know, appears to be struggling at that spot. So I think there's a myriad of factors why. Um, Mixon can't get going, but they have to find a, you don't need to run the ball 20. I'm a, I'm a staunch believer. You don't got to run the ball 25, 30 times a game. You don't need a hundred yards out of your running back, but you've got to have a good threat and run the ball when you need to, which I, which Brian Callahan said, you know, we've, we need to be able to do it when it counts. And I, I've, I tend to agree. And on Sunday, they just couldn't do that.
1: So a good friend of mine, a former colleague, uh, covering the Patriots, uh, actually still a colleague because he's at CLNS uh, up in Boston, Evan Lazar. He always would get on me saying, "Traggs, what is your issue with running the ball twenty-five to thirty times a game?" Essentially, you know, agreeing with you, Ben, that you know you want to run the run the ball to be honest, but you don't need to run the ball a hundred to 150 yards worth of, uh, you know, yardage from scrimmage to be effective. And I'm like, I I disagree. I think you do, if you're a team like the Bengals and you truly want to be complimentary, like Zach Taylor said, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we want to be complimentary on offense. We want to be more complimentary than we were, um, you know, the last two years. And to do that, I think you need the production. I mean, if teams think you're just going to run to show run, they're not going to fear you and they are going to still think you're pass first. But if you have the ability to break big runs, I think that changes the context of the defense entirely.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a, I understand the point. And, you know, there is a, there is a philosophical difference. And I think in the way we view the game, but I like to think, I think that when you look at, you can also use the pass. So, to get the short yardage gains that you need and essentially that is what the run does to a large degree you're looking for short yardage gains and and sometimes it's more efficient to do that in the passing game i think i'm not i'm not an analytics expert i'm bad at math i'm a journalist if i was good at math then i'd probably have i would do something where i make more money doing numbers or dealing with numbers but you know looking at it especially when you look at the schemes you know especially in texas and then the big 12 and like what With the variations of the air raid that's kind of been more palatable, that's not as extreme as kind of the the old Hal Mummy air raid and and maybe the spread and the run concepts inside the spread. The Mike Leach concepts, essentially. Yeah. Somewhat Leach is still kind of on the radical end of the spectrum. Uh, But, you know, there are guys who do it a little bit more conservatively. You know, Baylor actually did it really well. Uh, with Robert Griffin and kind of that, those era teams and that you can still find ways to run, especially when you have light boxes, but you're also creating, you know, short yardage situations. And it actually creates, if you've got a good enough quarterback and good enough receivers creates a lot of pressure on the cornerbacks. Cause they know that they're, you know, if you, if you don't press, and you don't jam and you don't win that battle off the line of scrimmage, then you might, might give up an easy five, six yards. And all of a sudden, you're looking at second and five or third and four and that down becomes a lot more manageable. Whereas trying to get that same gain on a run play, is a little bit more difficult because more often than not, I think it's easier to pick up six yards through the air than six yards on the ground. It's just a matter of going about it. It's actually like one of the things that I miss about covering college football is you see so many different ways on how to approach offense and approach the game. And in the NFL, it's a lot more homogenous, which is a little unfortunate, but I get it because the athletes, everybody's pretty similar. So, you know, in college, there's a little more disparity. So you see more, see more uh, schematic, uh, you know, uniqueness, uh, for lack of a better phrase. So why, I think it's it's fun. It's fun to talk about.
1: Why do you think, Chip, this is totally off the beaten path, but why do you think Chip Kelly struggled so much in Philly when he had his chance?
0: Uh, that's a good question. I'm not privy to everything that happened in Philly because there's two things. It could just be an offense thing and you can't really run Oregon stuff in the NFL. But the, the other thing too is that, You know, I don't know how college coaches tend to the the structure of programs and what they look like are vastly different. And the thing is, is for guy for I I think the thing is you have to build your entire team philosophy. How you build your roster is predicated on how you play the game. And in the NFL, it's not necessarily that simple. In college, you can say we want to run this system, we want to run this scheme, and we're going to recruit 25 guys every year for three years. To build that scheme. And you, when you talk about the size of, of your players, the defense, so the, the, you know, what you're gonna do offensively also has an impact on what you're gonna do defensively. So you've run if you're gonna run a lot of tempo and your guys are gonna be on the field often, that means you're gonna have smaller defensive linemen, a lot more longer corners. You're gonna have guys that play that nickel position who are a lot more hybrid guys and maybe not just slot corners, but can also play run in the pass and be a little bigger. And so all of those things are pretty, you know, it takes a full buy-in to run that kind of scheme and system. And I don't know if that's what didn't happen in in, in Oregon and and kind of why Chip struggled, but we've kind of seen, especially, uh, I think a lot of those coaching and a lot of those, uh, a lot of that style has been vindicated over the years as we've seen offense kind of take off in the NFL and really what Patrick Mahomes and the chiefs have done over the years. And, you know, I find it funny that, you know, the Ravens, they, they, they are a high scoring team, but they don't do it in what the way the chiefs do it. And that's fun. I mean, I think that the Sunday night game between Baltimore and Kansas city is a great example of different ways to score offensively because they both have dynamic quarterbacks who do different things. And so, you know, with Lamar running as much as he does, he creates such a numbers disadvantage. And I think Greg Roman, their offensive coordinator does a fantastic job of scheming them up different ways. Uh, So and but with with Kansas City, you know, you're going to have so much speed on the field and a guy who can get it anywhere he needs to. And it's going to create a lot of problems. And then they run the ball differently there. So it's it's just it's a lot of fun. And that's when football is really at its best.
1: So uh, another AFC North team uh, is in the news for the Bengals this week, of course, and that would be the Pittsburgh Steelers. It is Steeler week uh, number one of twenty twenty one. And the Bengals may be catching a big break, Ben, as uh, T.J. Watt has uh, suffered a groin injury in the game against Vegas on Sunday at home. Um, We'll see when the injury report comes out, but uh, groin injuries aren't uh, the easiest in the world to come back from. If the Bengals miss him, Um, I think that takes away at least one thing that the Bengals have to worry about, one big player, but they still have uh, a lot of weapons on defense and they're facing again another terrific uh, pre-safety in Minka Fitzpatrick.
0: Yeah, I think Minka's is one of the best safeties in the league. You know, and, and I think he's one of the best defenders in the league. Period. Just the amount of versatility he brings to the table, uh, his ability to play in different positions all across the all across the formation. I, I thought he was fantastic at Alabama, and he's been that way when the you know ever since he's gotten to Pittsburgh from Miami. I mean, that was a big uh, acquisition for them, and I think this is going to be a, a low-scoring game. Uh, When you look at where both offenses are, the Steelers still trying to figure out what they're going to look like under new offensive coordinator, Matt Canada, uh, who was actually Joe Burrow's first offensive coordinator at LSU, uh, I believe. And then, you know, he got fired, and then it took him a little while to get rolling. Uh, You know, I, I can't remember if Canada was there in 17 or 18, I believe, it was in 2018 when Kando was there, but uh, you know the Steelers right now kind of struggling a little bit to get going offensively. You know we're, we're trying to see where Ben Roethlisberger is at at this um, point in his career because uh, last year it didn't really look like you know he could really test defenses anymore, and we'll see what they you know there have been glimpses that that may have changed over the offseason for whatever reason, but. Now, I think, you know, as we see the offense and, you know, so there's someone posted on Twitter today, you know, we comment both commented on it, kind of the, the lack of efficiency uh, by both offenses. It, this looks like a game that will be pretty low scoring. So, right. you know, it's going to be all about maxing out possessions. And to be honest, if you have a chance to, to get some points on the board, you, you better do that. And this may not be the game uh, for aggressiveness because points may be at a premium.
1: Offensively, uh, Ben Roethlisberger is still one of the hardest quarterbacks in the league to bring down. But I think you can box him up. I think that you know that's one thing the Bengals did do in that Monday night game. You know, throw out all the Ryan Finley hype, and it was you know great for the Bengals to win on national television. But I think that game kind of underscored that if you keep Ben in the box, don't let him extend plays. Um, I think you can beat the Steeler uh, offense, and I think you can do it uh, in Pittsburgh
0: yeah you know and it's funny because to kind of bring the conversation full circle it's kind of an issue that you know what the Steelers had last year is what the Bengals were were dealing with on Sunday and that the inability to kind of test defenses vertically, so you know it compresses the field a lot. And I don't really know why Roethlisberger decided uh, in the in the Bengals or the the Pittsburgh offense last year was so predicated on quick throws and really just running a lot of quick game, uh, but it wasn't really efficient, and it ended up leading to a coordinator change. And so now you've got Canada in there, a guy who I believe loves a lot of a lot of motions and things of that nature, and and so we'll see how that looks. And, you know, the the most I know about Matt Canada. Uh, is that whenever he left LSU, I believe him and Ed Orgeron have an agreement uh, legally that they cannot disparage one another. Uh, it's almost like an NDA. So that, that's never really a good I found. did not
1: know that. Yes, I, I just yeah, learned because, something.
0: Yeah, because I, I believe every time uh, someone asked Orgeron about Canada, they says I can't, I legally can't talk about it. So, which is weird. Uh, but that's basically all I know about Canada. Uh, my colleague Brooke Pryor at a, uh, with the Steelers did a great story about how he kind of spent his year off watching a ton of film as he got ready uh, to get his, you know, kind of as a gap year after that LSU deal to get back into coaching, and this is a big test for him. So, you know, we'll see what this looks like moving forward, but, you know, I think both the offenses are trying to figure out their identity, which is going to be a fascinating matchup.
1: Ask Coach Canada. You're going to hear that a lot, uh, you know, after any loss this year in which uh, Ben does not have an efficient, efficient game. And that's what happened on Sunday at home to the Vegas uh, Raiders. It's interesting simply because uh, the Steelers look like all the world. They were the underdog. They weren't going to go into Buffalo and win on opening day. They did. And they they won pretty handily going away in the second half. That's why I think, you know, Week one is such a wild card, and it's very hard to judge these teams on what they're going to be, even after really two or three weeks. I don't think you get into a team's identity until you're in October and move toward November, and that's why I think it's important. Yes, the Bengals lost a game in which they looked incredibly inefficient, and they looked uh, dominated at the line of scrimmage, at least when they had the ball on Sunday. But I think there's so much football left, and Zach Taylor made this point, and yes, it's coach speak, but there is a lot of season left, and the Bengals still have the opportunity to define their identity going forward.
0: Yeah, you know, I think this is a big two-game stretch for them. If they're able to go steal a win at Pittsburgh, uh, as we saw last year, I don't think anybody picked them to win that Monday night game, and they ended up doing it against a Steelers team that was pretty at, you know, at full strength for the most part. And, you know, if they were able to steal that game and beat Jacksonville, then all of a sudden you're looking at a team that's three and one after four games, which is a pretty good sign of, you know, for them moving forward. I don't know if I, I don't know if I have the confidence to pick the Bengals this week, to be honest, I I do like the Steelers in this one uh, for, for a lot of different reasons, but I I do think that there still is time, even if you go two and two going into uh, after the four games, you're still in a position to to be where you want to be at this point in the season but i think it, it was it, it comes down to how the bengals look on sunday can they get this offense figured out a little bit more can they can they find you know where the yards are and the points are uh, with this offense because you got to remember this whole offseason and training camp preseason there was all this talk about how high powered this offense could be they looked at you know the weapons on the field and they say okay you know you've got three receivers who theoretically could be thousand yard receivers and be primary options on on multiple teams you've got a running back in joe mixon uh who's very good and then you've got a quarterback in joe burrow who should be taking a big leap in year two and and is an old enough guy that you're already expecting big things from him so when you look at all the pieces for me it's hard to figure out why this offense isn't connecting yet And, and sooner rather than later this offense is going to have to connect otherwise there will be some you know i think for this team to win games as we see on sunday They've got to score points. This is an NFL where scoring is necessary at a high level if you want to win at a high level. So, you know, there Sunday will be a good sign of whether things get situated, win or lose, because like you said, this is a long season. And for me, that is a long-term question that needs to be answered.
1: All right. You don't just cover uh, the Cincinnati Bengals. You also cover boxing. And what you tweeted uh, on Monday caught my eye. This fight remains an absolute train wreck. So explain to me why uh, the te, help me out here. Teofimo
0: Diafimo Lopez. Yes. And he's George
1: Cambosis. George
0: Cambosis. Correct.
1: Why is so, that a train wreck?
0: This has been a, uh, just a quick synopsis. So Teofimo Lopez is, is uh, rep. He, he's promoted by Bob Aram and top rank Muhammad Ali's former uh, promoter. And one of the legends in, in boxing, you know, and, right. and basically they did not want to pay the money after Tiafimo Lopez upset Vasily Lomachenko to win the 130, the, the bulk of the shares of the belts in the lightweight division. Didn't want to pay for the Cambosis mandatory defense. Tiafimo thought he earned more money after the win. He considered himself to, we see this in, in the NFL all the time. We have a good season. I go to my agent and say, I'd like a little bit more money. And the team goes, mm, I don't feel like giving it to you. And that's basically what we had happen here. And so boxing is one of the few sports where you get to test your, your mark, your, what's your worth on the free market almost at every given point, you know, you can make, there is no cap on how much money you can make. And, and honestly, that's how football should be as well, because when you're putting your body on the line, uh, yeah, you deserve that's a great every, point. Yeah. You deserve to get every dollar that you can, because you know, it's taking a physical toll on you. well, first TO contracted COVID-19. So the fight got pushed in July. And then, you know, Triller, which is a startup, you know, promotional company that really got big with the um, Mike Tyson and Roy Jones Jr. fight last year. That was kind of their big foray into this. They sunk a ton. There was a bid for this fight. They overpaid everybody, top rank uh, matchrooms, Eddie Hearn, which is dominating the UK right now for this fight. And now I think they quickly realize there isn't as much money as they thought. And this fight has been moved about four or five times. The price point has changed on the pay-per-view. And Teofimo Lopez is quickly realizing that he's maybe not as big of a star as he thought. And now he's losing all that momentum after beating Vasily Lomachenko, who was one of the top pound-for-pound fighters. I still think Lo- Lopez is really good. And in, in there's in an era of these, these four young guys, You know him, Ryan Garcia, uh, Tank Davis – uh, you know, Virgil Ortiz at a higher weight and Lopez is a really exciting fighter, but I need to see him in the ring. I'm very annoyed at this. Nobody wants to see this fight anymore. Just get it over with, put him in a parking lot and let's move on and let's have uh Tiafimo Lopez fight somebody else.
1: Well, because I'm turning this into a uh, boxing podcast, how has the uh, UFC and MMA impacted the box- boxing culture?
0: Yeah. You know, I think this has been an interesting conversation over the ha- last handful of years. Uh, you know, UFC has definitely gained a big market share. Joe Burrow, a big, uh, big UFC fan. I uh, believe there's a fighter out of Ohio. I cannot pronounce his name. I can't remember it because I'm not a never been a big UFC guy. For the uh, the fact of the matter is, is I don't like that UFC doesn't have the the, the 10 second knockdown rule, and I think that that's one of the uh, for me that is the best most dramatic. 10 seconds in sports every time a boxer gets knocked down uh, because they have to figure out, do I want to keep taking a beating or can I do something to change it? And you only have 10 seconds to do that. And sometimes in life, you know, you've got to make pretty quick decisions that are going to, you know, have a big impact on the rest of your life and you don't really have a lot of time to do it. And that's kind of a microcosm of that 10 second knockdown. And, and so I've never really gotten into UFC for that reason, but I know it's really popular and, you know, UFC does what boxing can't in a lot of ways, Uh, They were able to make matchups that people want to see. Now that's changed a little bit over the years, but I think because it's so centralized and and basically, you know, MMA, when people talk about MMA, they're only talking about UFC. They're not talking about Bellator. They're not talking about other, other outfits. They're only talking about UFC. So Dana White has a lot of control and, you know, he, we have a good relationship. So, you know, I, 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 you know, I think that Dana has the ability under the UFC banner to make a lot of fights And that's right now what boxing lacks, but boxers are allowed to go out and make more money and, you know, get higher paydays. You know, it's funny to me when boxers who nobody could pick out of a lineup are making million dollar paydays. Whereas, you know, some of the guys in UFC who are really recognized names are making similar money. So I think it's, it's a fascinating, you know, dichotomy of where it's at, you know, we'll see how it continues if UFC and MMA gets decentralized a little bit, much like we saw with boxing, you know, uh, several decades ago, but, it's definitely had an impact, but both sports, I think there is a a good and happy place for both sports to thrive. I think people like combat at the end of the day. Uh, people love physical sports, violent sports. That's why we love football uh, to some degree. And so uh, I think that there will always be room for both of those sports, but boxing's really got to get it together because all the other stuff they don't have to figure it out.
1: I love your enthusiasm, whether it's football, boxing, and we're not going to get into it now or cricket. Um, you are one of the most passionate, enthusiastic people I know when talking about any particular sport. You're either watching or covering, and nobody covers the Bengals, any better uh, than Ben Baby for ESPN. Uh, ben, it was really a lot of fun having you on. Hey, Trags, I enjoyed it. I'm glad this is what we do anyways on a daily basis
0: and in the press box. I'm glad we got to distill it down into a podcast. Thanks for well, having that,
1: me. That's the whole point of a podcast, right, Ben? I mean, is to, like, we're having these conversations all the time, on the beat, that's why you put it on air and you you record it for posterity, and then you let everybody listen to it. Look, to me, I always tell people this, and I don't know if you agree with this, Ben, but a great podcast is eavesdropping on a fun conversation. That's what it is. It's a little different than radio.
0: Right, and, and we're talking sports, so we should be having some fun, because if we're not, then why are we doing this?
1: Uh, couldn't agree more. Well, it's Steeler Week, and I want to thank everybody for getting ready for Steeler Week by listening to this episode of the Jungle Roar podcast. You can download it everywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts like Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. I want to thank our terrific guest, Ben Baby of ESPN. Follow him on Twitter at Ben underscore Baby, B-A-B-Y. That's where you can follow them all the time on Twitter. You should be doing that if you want to know all things Cincinnati Bengals. For Ben, I'm Mike Petralia. Thanks for listening.